Clayton preached last week, and he started a kicked off to some degree, we'll, we'll say it's a series on worship. And the intention was that over the next however how many weeks we were hoping to preach on worship. And I'd actually had in my heart to preach about worship for no particular reason, but I wouldn't even necessarily say it's my main thing, so to speak. But as I trust that I'll be able to communicate simply today, not to complicate things, worship is everybody's thing. And that, hopefully, is the conclusion that we can all come to. So what we're going to do is hopefully try and answer a couple of questions. So the, I, I jotted down a couple of questions that I, I think would be a fair goal for me to have as I speak this afternoon, not morning. Really hard to get used to that. So there are some So we're talking about worship, and I think there's a couple of questions that would be important for us to answer. And I speak about this individually, not necessarily corporately, although it has implications corporately. First question is, why worship? Why worship? So that's question number one. And question number two, as it relates to worship, why should I care? And that may resonate with you. It may not. Some of you actually may think that worship isn't really your thing, quote unquote, your thing. I don't know what your thing is, but... My, my particular goal in, in speaking to you, because everybody brings their own perspective, their own background, their own history, their own likes, dislikes, in regards to the church generally, so most certainly with regards to worship. And I would actually ask you to be honest with yourself right now and actually think about worship from your own perspective and actually consider every objection or question you have about this issue of worship. I label it as an issue only because I'm talking about it. But just be honest with yourself. If you don't particularly embrace worship, well, why is that? If you don't particularly have a sense that this is your thing, why is that? Is it a past experience? Is it a conception you have in your head, your thing, not thing, whatever? So just consider that for a moment, because I want you to think about it, because I'm hoping that we can actually work through this together, but as individuals as well. So in our home group, we don't have a lot of people, but we're doing one of my favorite things that I love to do, as I shared in a prayer meeting. Favorite segment on GTS is Bible or not. I love Bible or not. Just love it, right? And so in, in our life group, we're doing that. We're actually examining a book. We have only done one chapter, so it's not like this real extensive thing. But we have been looking at a particular book about life strategies. You can even say it's like a life coaching type of book. And my particular instruction was that I want us to read it, and then we're going to talk about it, and particularly start to answer the questions, is that Bible? Is that piece of advice? Is that from the Bible, or is it not? Is it worldly thinking? And I enjoy doing that only because what I try to hopefully instill into some degree with my family is that there has to be an ability for us to critically work through issues, and ultimately the filter is, is it the Bible or is it not? Because the world has a voice, the Bible has a voice. And whatever you do, you've picked one. That's just a fact. So Clayton, last week, he talked about worship. He ended, he summarized a lot of things. In the end, he talked about worshiping in spirit and in truth. And you've probably all heard the phrase. Okay. So we're going to read uh, from that passage. It's particularly, we're going to read actually a lot from John. And particularly, we're going to pick up at John 4, verse 19. And this context of this is Jesus meets 
the Samaritan woman, he's tired, asks her for a drink, gives him words of knowledge. He's like, ah, you must be the prophet, right? And then this discourse starts to transpire in starting in verse 19. And this discourse to me is interesting because this is what you could actually recognize as the issue of that day. But this actually is an issue of our day too. And she goes on to say, Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. That happened to be the issue of the day. Oh, verse 19, John 4, verse 19. So this issue of that day is, in some sense, with regards to worship, the issue of our day as well. Because if worship is associated with the place, an environment, atmosphere, it's really the same issue. Now, however you want to grade worship this morning or this afternoon relative to other weeks, how we do worship in this church versus the other church, is this a style that I like, this one moves me more, it's really the same issue. It's an issue of how should I worship? Is it like that over there? Is it like this over here? Where should I? How should I? What is the atmosphere? And I understand that's kind of a consumer mentality. I get that. Today particularly, and I'm not even going to say how extensive this is, but people can sometimes grade worship by, does it stir me? Did I feel the tangible presence of God there? Because that's true worship, isn't it? Well, yes, it's a true impact of true worship. I, I get that. But is by, and I'm going to say this very clearly, that is not obviously the criteria. I hope you can understand that. But I'm putting the issue on the table that what was said 2,000 plus years ago is the same issue that we face today with worship. That is referring to something external and now producing controversy about, well, what exactly is worship? So Jesus addresses the issue by bringing truth, because Jesus, as we know from John, is full of grace and truth. So he speaks, and this he brings truth, starting in verse 21. It says, Jesus declared, believe me, woman, and I don't exactly know how that was translated, and, but that's not the most politically correct way to start a conversation. But he said it. Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. You've all heard this passage. You've all heard the statement about worshiping in spirit and in truth. I'm not telling you anything you haven't heard or know. But if you actually consider that this is truth, then there are certain implications that we can't actually avoid. Now, I know I'm a lawyer. I look at things a certain way. I critique things. I think through things, yada, yada. But it speaks of true worshipers. The necessary implication of that, there is such a thing as false worship. I think you can accept that as true. And what, so false worship exists. And then I say, well, what is false worship? And I know you would like me to answer that question. Because now you can sort of judge yourself, well, do, am I meaning what I just said as being false worship? I'm not going to answer that. I'll, only to say, anything that is not true worship is false worship. That's kind of the way the Bible goes. He, do not, he do, who does not gather with me scatters. 
It's not so much about detailing the negative, it's about telling you what the standard is, and if you don't meet that standard, by implication, it's against it. So false worship exists. False worship is anything that's not true. I think you can agree with me on that, I hope. And it says, it goes on, and it says in verse 24, you must worship in spirit and in truth. I'm preaching from the NIV. Clayton, as you know, loves to preach from the New King James Version, the holier version, apparently, because probably because it says thou. And, but don't ever be confined to a particular version, right? Because if you really are a student, you're going to look at all the versions. So, of course, I want to look at what does that mean? That word must, what does it mean? So I looked at all the other versions, and you know what it says? Must. So must, if you really want to start to delve into what that word, I didn't look it up in the definition because I figured we have a pretty good sense of what must is. We could probably put something like imperative. It's a non-negotiable. You don't get to substitute your own alternative. And I understand that in today's world, kids especially, they don't like that word. You must do that. Well, what are my options? I don't like that option. Do I have a better one? Do we have an alternative that suits me in my situation and my own personal views a little bit better? So everything mostly in the world that you can see starts to chip away this idea of what must means. Must worship in spirit and in truth. And that is a standard by which true worshipers are actually noted. And the interesting thing about it is, because it's just this is what it says, the Father is seeking true worshipers. This is not, well, I hope they are there, because this makes me feel better. And by seeking, it is an active searching out, looking for, desiring, trusting that they actually are there, because he's focused on it, true worshipers. And I hope by what I've just said to you, has put something inside you, said, well, where am I in this? There is a standard, because there's a must, that defines what true is, and God, the Father, is specifically seeking them out. And that partially explains, should be answering our question of why. The why is not because of what I said. The why is not of some construct of what I believe the world ought to be, how it should work, what the value system is. This is purely from heaven above. The Father basically putting in place his structure of what he is looking for and defining exactly what that is. True worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. You've heard it, now we have to actually try and explore what that is. You have heard us speak, not me alone, so I can't claim this is my thing, certainly not my thing, but worship as an individual, which is how we're examining this, worshiping in spirit and truth as the must statement, you have to understand who you are. And you are what, as Watchman Nee would specify, you are a tripartite man. You have a body, you have a soul, and you have a spirit. If you are a believer, your spirit is active. If you are a non-believer, your spirit portion is dead. If you are a non-believer, you actually have no capacity to transact in the spirit. It's cut off. It died. To be born again means your spirit has now been reborn. It is now alive, which is why it's the greatest miracle that ever existed. So to make it pretty clear... I actually have a couple pictures up there, and we're going to go to the soul. So your body, your soul, your spirit. Your soul is comprised of three portions. 
Your soul is comprised of three, consists of, actually comprised is wrong, consists of three portions. It is your mind, your rational thinking, it is your will. I think we understand what that, because we're trained from very young to exert that. And your emotions, that's your soul. Your spirit, on the other hand, consists of three different aspects. This is your conscience, I just wrote it here. I think we all understand what, and have a sense of what your conscience is. It helps us discern right from wrong. If you're mature, you have a heightened sense of that. Just able to distinguish right from wrong. It is your intuition. It is your direct sense or feeling in our spirit, regardless of reason or circumstance. If you can think it through, rationalize it, that's in your soul. There are some things that come up apart from rational thinking. You didn't deduce it by putting A plus B equals C and running through your rational thought process. Intuition is actually something beyond that. It's in your spirit. And lastly, fellowship. And the fellowship enables us to contact and commune with God. Now, body, soul, spirit. And we've talked a lot about the differences between your soul and the spirit. Sons of God are led by the spirit. I've always interpreted that as being, there's an issue of rulership, as we all know. And when your spirit rules, it goes well. When your, when your soul rules, not so well. Just take an example of fear. If your, soul, if your soul is ruling, the fear rooted in your soul will trump every word of God that you have stored up in yourself, nullify it because your soul is now ruling. And guess what? You're going to be fearful. If your spirit is in control, every fear that starts to well up in your emotions, in your soul, will be literally put down by something in the spirit. So it's a question of rulership. Now, let's talk about worship, because we, that's the whole point. Worship. I love looking up the definitions of things, because I could not understand. I can, you, you have a sense of what words are, but something you just need to see it in print. This is what it means. I don't know how the people actually come up with it, but I love it, because it's a reference point. Worship. I looked it up in the dictionary. You can look at Merriam-Webster, whatever. This is one definition. It's reverence offered a divine being or supernatural power. Alternatively, it's an extravagant respect or admiration for the object of devotion or esteem. Just think about money. Do people worship money? Yeah, pretty sure. The key of these types of definitions, understanding what worship represents, is you can only worship what you know or are familiar with. Because you're talking about revering something, you're talking about esteeming something respecting something. You literally cannot worship, you cannot revere something you don't know. It is not possible. So if you don't know what that is, you cannot worship it. The greater your familiarity with something, the greater you see, I mean, you can think of the greatest leader you've ever known, if you knew them personally especially, and you saw what they went through, you saw what they carried, you saw what they exerted, how they had vision, and you so revere and respected that could lead to a sense of worship. And of course, God being a simple example of that. But accept as a premise that worship by definition requires knowledge. If you don't know what the object is, you cannot worship that thing. So I just gave you who you are, body, soul, spirit. Your spirit made up of three parts, intuition, your conscious, and fellowship. The fellowship is the mechanism by which you know God by which you commune with God, the element by which you actually understand and actually walk with God. You see, in Romans chapter 1, verse, I think it's 22, somewhere around there, 
It talks about general revelation. It says that you know, the invisible qualities about God are known whether they're believers or not. Just looking at nature, something is like literally spawned in people that they recognize that there's something there that is speaking about the qualities of God, about attributes of God. They know about him, but they don't know him. Only by your spirit, in the fellowship part of your spirit, can you actually know God. I can, you can read the Bible. Do you need to be a believer to read the Bible? No, you don't. You can read the Bible, you can take in information, you can process that rationally in your mind, and maybe actually bend your will to something that you just have concluded rationally. I reap what I sow. Well, maybe I should sow better. That would be a product of my rational thought. I changed my behavior. You don't need to be a believer to do that. You can get information about God just looking at nature. You can get information about the invisible attributes of God, but that does not equate to knowing God. You see, it all started, as we know, I'm preaching backwards. If you go to the Garden of Eden, there was fellowship with God. When Adam and Eve sinned, the Father of the God's walking through the garden and said, Where are you? Fellowship had been broken, right? And that is the condition by which everybody who is a son of Adam exists in. There is no fellowship. And until that relationship gets repaired by your spirit being activated by being born again, only then can you know God. So when I say you must worship in spirit and truth, put aside all these ideas that you might have about what great worship looks like. It does not matter because the capacity you have to worship is already hardwired and built in you. If you are a believer, your spirit is alive. That fellowship portion has it literally hardwired to commune with God, to have fellowship with God, just as Adam and Eve had in the Garden of Eden. And by that, you will know God. And by that knowing and knowledge, you now have the capacity to worship. There's no music involved with that, is there? Could be. You must worship in spirit and in truth. Now, the truth is an easy part because what you receive from God in just communing with him is truth. And it's by that interaction as part of who you are, you don't have to do anything different. That's who you are. If you're born again, your spirit is alive. It's hardwired by design to commune with God, to restore what was lost in the Garden of Eden, and now you have knowledge of him and now have a capacity to be a true worshiper. And the Father is seeking them out. Doesn't seem very complicated. Doesn't seem like it's beyond your reach because he just designed you that way. So we have to ground this, of course. But this is who you are. And I trust I'm not telling you anything really new but more importantly, having you understand who you are so that you understand what you're hardwired to do, not to accomplish something that is beyond you, not to change your thing, so to speak, because this is all of our thing by design. So when you talk about operating in the spirit, that, of course, now becomes a little bit of the question. And now we have, there are some practical things, and Jesus, of course, models this. And we're going to continue on because we have to look at some practical hands-on how do we do this thing, which I just said is your thing? It's not a non-negotiable. There's no alternative. This is a must, and God's looking for that. So we know the stories. In John chapter 6, you know the story. It's the feeding of the 5,000. And you know also the story that amazing miracle. They pick up 12 basketfuls of leftover pieces. And then an interesting thing happens. No surprise. 
after Jesus performs the miracle, the 5,000 men plus others, Jesus knew, I don't know how he knew, was it communicated, was it word of knowledge, I don't know, probably not subtle. The 5,000 men plus others, Jesus knew they want to force me to be king. Now, that might seem like kind of an insignificant event to you. To me, just if I'm really honest with myself, you can have, I can strike false to me. It's like, no, 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 you, you don't want me to be king. But you can keep asking, I like that, all right? But Jesus withdraws, which is just a model of where Jesus, they were going to force him to be king. Jesus always withdrew from situations where he did not have a choice. Why? Because he knew if I, my choice is taken away, I'm being manipulated. Jesus withdrew to a mountain to pray, right? The, the disciples get into the boat and they start rowing, right? It's kind of windy, got all that thing going on. And then we know what happens. Jesus in the fourth watch of the night starts walking on the water. Doesn't say it was a full moon, doesn't say how much light there was, but they thought he was a ghost. And to be fair, that's about as accurate a description, a very poignant description of what actually is transpiring. And let me just break it down. But you had to understand the context of what was going on. Jesus, when the 5,000 men plus others decide they're going to force him to be king, he withdraws to the mountain to pray. Why? Not to subtly wait to the disciples got to the halfway across the lake, struggling now, I'm just going to kind of walk on the water, here I come, right? It wasn't this kind of built-in delay to suit his purposes, although he had many, I'm sure. One of the things that was going on, I am sure, because Jesus was tempted in every way, and when 5,000 plus people are saying, you're going to be our king, even though you know you don't want to be king because that's not what God ever said for you to do. You already resisted that when the devil tempted you in the desert said, if you worship me, all the kingdoms I will give to you, which is Jesus' designed to restore all that which was lost. So on the mountain from evening to the fourth watch of the night, which is three in the morning, he's praying. And I don't think he's praying about, okay, you tell me when to go so I can make a dramatic entrance for the disciples so they can see me walking on the water. I don't think that was going on. I can tell you, if it was me, as one who is tempted, so very familiar with temptation, it is literally dying to yourself, knowing that that very thought, the very inkling of that thought ought to be rejected, taken captive, spiritual warfare. And you don't emerge out of that with doubt. He settled it, worked it through, knew that he had one job to do on earth, which is to go to the cross. And that by no means was by the design of God. But he's tempted in the soul. And you emerge from an encounter like that, working it through just like we all do at times, so full in the spirit, spirit have absolute dominance to this, over the soul. The soul, the very voice, every emotion, the very cravings of the soul, so put down, it is only the rulership of the spirit. And now he walks in the water. Why is that a, a, a poignant picture? Because as a ghost would, there is no impact of worldly forces. A physical body would sink just by the nature of gravity. But one who walks in the water, in a sense, is a manifestation of the really rulership of the spirit. The forces of the world have no impact. That's why he walks in water, it's my opinion. And we know the forces that would really desire to drag you down. And let's bring this back to worship. See, Clayton was sneaky. I recognize this as I was thinking about it during worship. Clayton, you sneaky guy. <laughs> you probably even know he was being sneaky, but I, I know Clayton, he's pretty sneaky. So I just explained to you what true worship is, which is a, basically 
an ability to revere what you have knowledge of, which is by your spirit. I just went to the story of Jesus operating in the spirit such that he's literally walking while the forces of this world have no hold on him. And that really is the battleground for worship on an individual level. Because when you consider, and it has nothing to do about whether you come into a corporate worship, this is everything to do about your worship, right? What do we know happens? Oh, dang, I'm having a pretty rough day. I'm just not feeling it today. Dealing with this issue of work, dealing with this issue of my, I just had a fight with my spouse. Not feeling very holy right now, right? That's your soul. Your soul would weigh you down so that you actually sink and your spirit has no dominion. And a lot of times for us, personal worship literally comes down to that. Is the degree to which your spirit is in control such that your soul and the pressures of this world have no effect on you? Look, what's another example? Fear of man. Right, let's just be honest about this, right? I'm older. I've been in a lot of churches. Didn't grow up in a charismatic church where, you know, raising your hands was like, ooh, this is the thing. Right, there's no culture of that that I grew up in. And probably one of the biggest resistances of people just, just being willing to do something like this, like, well, what's that person going to think, right? I'm just telling you what I thought. It's like, well, you know, there's like, I mean, I've, I've grown old, I've grown older. I've realized some things along the way. Number one, people think about me way less than I think they think. Just to be honest. I mean, you can kind of butter yourself up, make yourself look good, and there's nothing wrong with any of that. But quite frankly, people don't care about me as much as I think they care. They just don't. They got their own issues going on. I'm not that important. I've just realized that for myself over the time that, you know, you think people are like really like worrying about what you're doing, and yeah, if it impacts them, yeah. But if you're just doing your thing, quite frankly, oh yeah, he wore a red shirt today. I didn't see that. It was my special shirt that I thought would elicit reaction because it's really thoughtful in design. It's like, people don't care. <laughs> but, but it's a real thing, right? And I'll get back to Clayton. Clayton, I'm not losing you. You're not off the hook. <laughs> so, fear of man. We've talked about it. In fact, the whole series on identity, a big part of it was just being free from others. And I try and tell this to my boys, whether they believe it or not. We'll see. If you care so much about what somebody thinks or expects of you, they have rulership over you. You are their slave. I'm calling it as it is. And there is certainly no excuse not to be polite, not to be gracious. I'm not saying those things. But if the way you operate is based upon people's expectations, taking your choice away through manipulation controls, because I'm sorry, you will undergo manipulation control. Expect it. It's going to happen. But if you are a slave to that, line of thinking, you literally are a slave to another person. They literally have power over you. You are a slave to the one you obey. So, we come into a place like this, you might have had a great day, bad day, something in between. And the degree to which you're able personally to enter into worship is partly dependent upon this issue of your soul and your spirit. Which one's ruling? Because I just told you what real worship is, true worship. It's in your spirit. So Clayton, being a sneaky guy, you just think, well, Clayton's got a mic, he likes to not preach, right? He doesn't ever preach. He's probably disclaimed preaching more than anybody else that ever lived. But he did a sneaky but fantastic thing, which is exactly what I'm talking about. He comes up here, and you know how he started worship? What did he do? He read Psalms, two chapters. You might not be feeling it in your soul, 
might not be feeling great. And the issue is, is your spirit active? Is your spirit active? So he starts, and he starts reading scripture. One of the ways your spirit will begin to activate, some more than others. Some people just are wired for the word, and just to read the word will change every perspective they have. But he did. I'm sure he didn't do it specifically because of what I'm telling you, but it was still sneaky nonetheless. So that's the first thing he did. Second thing he did, he had you confess. You have a choice. He didn't say, if you're not going to do this, you have to leave. You had a choice. Subtle pressure, I get that. But he said, you, out of your own mouth, you start to say. You start to cheer. Your soul might be saying, I'm not into this. Your will say, absolutely not. But then you say, well, I'll give that a shot. And that starts, your spirit now starts to begin taking dominion over your soul. And then he prays, which is another aspect of you just need to understand. This, I'm not telling you, this is not graduate level Christianity. This is just who you are. This is a normal Christian life. You have a spirit, and the, the ability by which, or the degree to which your spirit is active and actually manifesting in your life is the issue of worship. So Sneaky Clayton basically just literally, as they say, uh, primed the pump so that worship actually had a head start versus if he didn't. Could worship still have gone fantastic? Yeah, absolutely. But you have to understand the keys that each of us carry and our responsibility in personal worship is the degree to which your spirit is active, literally, figuratively walking on water, as I would say, the forces of this world do not have a hold on you, is the degree to which your personal worship will represent true worship. Now, it doesn't end there, of course. Clayton has done a lot of preaching on worship, and I, I want to emphasize some of what he already said. And he brought up Tehillah. And... I think we all know what the definition of Tehillah is. I think we've probably seen examples of Tehillah. But I don't know what you feel about Tehillah in terms of your personal value of Tehillah. And I want to reinforce what Clayton says, because if you haven't understood this, I think he's been pretty clear, because Clayton is not discreet about a lot of things. Why am I talking about you so much? I don't know. I love you, Clayton. Mostly, most of the time. Anyway, um, Clayton is not discreet about many things. And the, one of the values he carries is the impact of Tehillah for us corporately. Now, you're probably thinking, okay, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a Hebrew word. Well, what does it mean again? How does this work? Well, so let me make it as simple as I can. So, and we'll use Jesus' example again to illustrate this thing about worship. So in, in John chapter 6, he continues on. And he starts telling the people about him being the bread of heaven, right? So Jesus speaking truth, right? And I'm going to summarize this because I, I want to just kind of wrap it up. He starts speaking about him being the bread of heaven. And this is the kind of things he got, because he's speaking truth, right? People not buying it. First, begin to grumble. This is in verse uh, John 6, I think like verse 41-ish. Keeps talking. Then they begin to argue keeps talking. Talks about, you know, you know, my flesh, you know, drink my blood. Oh yeah, this is not, not real popular. This doesn't really agree with the worldly line of thinking. Certainly countercultural. People say, who can accept this teaching? They go on, it says, and Jesus says, does this offend you? Not exactly a fear of man there, is there? And of course, some disciples actually leave. And at the conclusion of this whole package, he then says this, which is very important for you to understand about Tehillah. 
He says in John chapter 6, verse 62, he says this. What if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? He knows the true reality of what's going on. He knows who he is. The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit, and they are life. I just went through to try and build an understanding of who you are, having a spirit that's alive. A portion of that spirit is fellowship. Fellowship gives you knowledge of God, and only by that can you revere and now worship him as a true worshiper. And when your spirit is activated and actually has dominion over the flesh, you are actually able to function in that way, such as the forces of the world don't have a hold on you. What's the point? There's many points of that, aside from the fact that you are now a true worshiper. But Tehillah is exactly that. My words are spirit, and they are life. So you imagine now a time of worship when people just being who they are, just true worshipers, functioning in their spirit, communing with God, and God communing with them, God telling them things, revealing things to them through the spirit. Flesh counts for nothing. It's only by the spirit. And now the word comes to one of you, perhaps, one of the worship team, and then they start to sing it. Maybe they have the mic, they start to speak it. Tehillah. Why? My words are spirit, and they are life. See, every environment you are in, every atmosphere is dominated by a spirit. Just accept that as true. If you're particularly sensitive to the spirit, you might be like, ooh, something's not right here. It's like, oh, no, this place, I can feel the peace. It's awesome, I feel good. Every step you take, every environment you in, you have the capacity to change that environment. How do you do that? One is by authority, and every believer has a measure of authority to do that. If I have received a word of God, and let's not try and over-dramatize this, but if God told me something to say, you should immediately say, well, why? It's not for information purposes now, is it? Spirit gives birth to spirit. If that word now, if I'm obedient to that and I actually unleash it, what does that have the capacity to do? It has the capacity to change the atmosphere. I don't think I'm unique in this, by the way, because I just believe that if I carry the spirit and if I'm speaking under the unction of the spirit, I have the capacity to change the atmosphere of any situation I'm in. Is that because I've been doing something for 20 years? No. It's because that's what the Word of God says, and I've seen it happen. And that's what Tehillah is. My words are spirit, his words. My words are spirit, and they are life. So when, in the context of worship, words come forth either through song, potentially, but literally the heart of God for this situation, possibly for individuals here, it has the capacity to shift, shift perspective. They could be dominated by their thinking in their soul. It literally will wreck that, put it, literally stomp that out and bring life into the spirit. It can bring life over a physical area. I'm not trying to limit it. I'm just saying this is what happens. The capacity of the spirit of God, the words in the spirit to bring life, who can limit that? But that is the point. It unleashes something that will accomplish so much more in so short of time relative to any amount of preaching, teaching, or anything like that. So let's land this thing. I hoped that we started by you thinking through every objection, every possible thing, issue that you might have with worship if it's not your thing. And I asked you two questions. Why worship and why should I care? And I hope you honestly ask yourself that question. Because the answer to both, as I tried to explain, is that 
this is by design. I'm not telling you to do something you weren't trained to do. I'm not telling you that you should want to do something that you weren't designed to do. I'm telling you something that God made for you just to restore what he already had in the Garden of Eden with you. You see, I mean, the story of the Bible is actually, I think when I make the story of the Bible so complicated, the kid can't understand it, I've messed it up. And if I were to say, well, what's the children's version of the Bible? So there was a father that had some kids, had a great time with them, had wonderful fellowship with them. Kids made some bad choices, broke that fellowship, had a new master that they served, a master that had them meet a standard that he knew they couldn't meet and did not lift a finger to help. And the true father, seeing them in that plight, had compassion for them. And he sent somebody to retrieve them, the deliverer. And the instructions that the deliverer said to the one that had captive, had enslaved his former children, the first instruction was, let my people go so that they may worship me. That's the Bible. The whole redemption story is that they can actually have fellowship restored, which is worship. That's you. That's me. That's the Bible. That's the good news. So that's why worship, because that's the intention that was frustrated from the very beginning to today. And he has made the way to restore that so that he could have fellowship with you. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's just stand up. Let's just pray. If you would, would you just close your eyes? I'm just going to pray a very short prayer. We're not done with worship. I know there's so much more we can say about worship. Just close your eyes. Lord, I just thank you for you. I thank you for what you have made a way for us to return to you. And my prayer for us as a body is that we would be open to fellowship with you. Not by what anybody else has said, but fellowship one-to-one between the father and their child. Fellowship, true fellowship where we could commune with you, know you, and have that be the center of our lives. So I just release in the name of Jesus just a blessing of your people just to be with you. May we be open to how you desire to commune with us, how you desire to speak and just spend time with us. I pray that in the name of Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Amen.